Let's start this morning with a quote taken from the journals of a pioneer priest working in the 1880s, Miles City, Montana. Quote, I will relate one more genuine full-blooded baptism. Robert Cobb Matthews, born of Robert Matthews and his wife, Mary Jane McKenna, baptized July 31st, 1881. Residence, Matthews Ranch, 20 miles below the junction of the Missouri and Yellowstone Rivers in North Dakota. They traveled 10 days and a half horseback, carried their provisions and oats for the horses and a tent for the night. They said it would take as long to go home as it did to come. It took 21 days of travel to get that baby baptized. This was during the Sioux War. They were constantly in danger to be met by Indians, to be robbed of all they had, to be murdered, and their bodies left for the wolves to devour. Close quote. It took 21 days of travel to get that baby baptized. This was during the Sioux War. They're constantly in danger to be met by Indians, to be robbed of all they had, to be murdered, and their bodies left for the wolves to devour. That's about 200 miles horseback with an infant traveling through absolute wilderness, and that's some pretty rough country, just to get to the priest, just to get their baby baptized. Since it's God Aid Sunday, we're supposed to rejoice. And for starters, we can rejoice that we don't have to ride ten and a half days through wilderness just to get to a priest a wilderness crawling with war parties. But we also had to stop and pause to consider the incredible value the Catholics have traditionally placed on having their babies baptized in a timely fashion. And we can see this clearly in an example like that. As the Catechism of the Council of Trent states, quote, since infant children have no other means of salvation except baptism, we may easily understand how grievously those persons sin who permit them to remain without the grace of the sacrament longer than necessity may require. Close quote, Catechism of the Council of Trent. This hasn't changed since that time, as instruction on infant baptism approved by our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, on October 20th, 1980, makes clear, quote, for infants, baptism is entry into the church and the gateway to personal salvation. The church knows no other way apart from baptism for ensuring children's entrance into eternal happiness. Accordingly, it is important to recall that the baptism of infants must be considered a serious duty. As for the time of the actual celebration, the first consideration is the welfare of the child, that it may not be deprived of the benefit of the sacrament. As a rule, an infant should be baptized within the first weeks after birth." Close quote. The baptism of infants must be considered a serious duty. The first consideration is the child may not be deprived of the benefit of the sacrament, as a rule, the infant should be baptized within the first weeks after birth. The church knows no other way apart from baptism for ensuring children's entrance 
into eternal happiness. Infants should receive baptism as soon as is reasonably possible. Those who delay the baptism of infants gravely sin. In other words, what is the church telling us? Don't delay baptizing babies. Don't delay. Even if everyone can't get there, get the baby baptized and have the party sometime later on when everyone can be there. The first consideration has to be the welfare of the infant, that it isn't deprived of the benefits of this sacrament. The Catechism of the Constant points out that we priests should make a point of making baptism a frequent topic of instruction. It's been a year since we last talked about this, so let's review. We'll review the merciful effects of baptism and also how to baptize in emergencies. Today we're only going to cover the sacrament of baptism. We won't talk about baptism of desire, baptism of blood, or what happens to babies that die without baptism. Anyone here that's lost an unbaptized child, you can be at peace. The child is perfectly and totally happy. That's the teaching of the church. We'll talk about that at another day. Baptism. Let's review. There are six merciful effects of baptism. First merciful effect is the remission of sins. Baptism remits original and all actual sin. Here's the infallible teaching of the Council of Trent. Quote, If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in baptism, the guilt of original sin is remitted, or that all sin is not taken away, let him be anathema. Close quote. Let him be anathema means let him be excommunicated. That's what that means. So baptism remits all the guilt of original sin and all the guilt of actual sin. All of it. Every last speck. It does not matter what a man did. If an adult gets baptized, it doesn't matter if he's an incredible monster of a criminal. Baptism wipes away all the sin just like that. It's gone. Original and actual sin. Second merciful effect. Baptism remits all punishment due to sin. All of it. So even if this guy was a terrible criminal, all the purgatory time is gone just like that. We do penance after we've gone to confession, but nobody does penance after they've been baptized. Okay? It's all gone. Third merciful effect. The soul of the newly baptized man is flooded with sanctifying grace. Now that's another way of saying that the soul of the newly baptized man is now supernaturally alive. He's got supernatural life. And as we've seen before, in order to live the life of heaven, we have to be supernaturally alive. If we die with sanctifying grace, which is the same as saying if we die supernaturally alive, we can live the life of heaven. If we die without sanctifying grace, we can't live the life in heaven, pure and simple. That's how, how it is. We're all born dead, supernaturally speaking, thanks to Adam. But baptism makes us supernaturally alive. It floods our souls with sanctifying grace. Fourth merciful effect. The soul of the newly baptized man is united to Christ. He's the vine, and baptism makes that newly baptized man one of the branches. Baptism unites a soul to Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what he established the church for. 
so we can have a living contact with the living Christ so that we're in contact with him. Everything in our religion is about contact with our Lord. It's about living with his life. Since Adam blew it, we need his life in order to live eternally. And that's why he became man. And baptism unites us to him. So the soul of the newly baptized man is united with Christ. And so through that union with Christ, supernatural virtues are poured into the soul. Virtues like faith and hope and charity and supernatural prudence and fortitude and temperance and justice. These virtues are poured in, okay? Sanctifying grace changes the way we are. It changes our being. But supernatural virtues change the way we act. Sanctifying grace brings us alive supernaturally. It makes us alive. Supernatural virtues make us able to act in a supernatural way. For example, take the virtue of faith. Those and only those with the supernatural virtue of faith can believe that our Lord is really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. People with the virtue of faith can believe that. No one else can. That's a gift from God. We can't do that, naturally speaking. It's not obvious. It takes faith. It takes a lot of faith, and it only comes through union with Christ. Only those with this gift, this supernatural gift of faith, can believe that. No one else can. Now, we can lose it, but we can believe it only by the power we got from Christ. No one else has ability. It's supernatural. It's above our nature. Fifth merciful effect. Baptism impresses the soul with an indelible mark. It's a mark called a character. It's a spiritual mark in the soul that can never be blotted out. The character of baptism that's impressed in the soul then makes the soul capable of receiving other sacraments, which explains that why, even though Our Lady was conceived free from original sin, and of course has spent her whole life absolutely free from all actual sin, even though she's completely free from original and actual sin, she was baptized. Cornelius Elapides says that according to the ancient fathers, Christ himself baptized Our Lady. This character makes a baptized soul different from those who have not been baptized. It's sort of like a brand in the spiritual realm, showing that a person belongs to Christ, showing that person is a Christian. Baptism impresses his indelible character, and since it does that, it can never be repeated again. As St. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. Sixth merciful effect. Because baptism removes original and actual sin, and the punishment due to sin, it opens the gates of heaven. So the six merciful effects of baptism are first, the remission of original and actual sin. Second, the release from all punishment due to sin. Third, the soul becomes supernaturally alive. It's filled with sanctifying grace. In fact, St. Catherine of Siena had a vision. Our Lord allowed her to see a soul in the state of grace. And she said, had she not known that was a creature, she would have fallen down and worshipped it. The beauty was so incredible. So the soul is filled with sanctifying grace. Fourth, the soul is united to Christ. And because of that union with Christ, 
the virtues, Christ's virtues, pour into the soul, the supernatural virtues like faith, hope, and charity, and so on. Fifth, the soul is marked with a permanent character that makes it capable of receiving the other sacraments. And sixth, the gates of heaven are now open for that baptized man. Now that we've seen the merciful effects of baptism, it's easy to understand why it's such an absolutely essential sacrament. How necessary is it? The infallible teaching of the Catholic Church is expressed in one of the canons from the Council of Trent. Quote, If anyone saith that baptism is optional, that is not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. If anyone saith that baptism is optional, not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. Now we'll cover desire and blood on a later date. Why is baptism so necessary? Because, thank you Adam, we're born without supernatural life. But in order to live the life of heaven, in order to be saved, we have to be supernaturally alive. It's cut and dry. To be supernaturally alive, we must be baptized. Now let's take a look at the basic aspects of baptism, which are the matter, the form, the minister, and the intention. The outward sign of a sacrament has two parts. They're determined by Christ, our Lord. Our Lord set them up. We don't invent them. Christ just determines this. One part's called the matter. That's the stuff in the sacrament. The outward part of the sign is called the form. What's the other part? What's the form? It's the words. For example, in the most blessed sacrament of the altar, the matter is wheat bread, not rice bread, and not I don't know what bread. It's got to be wheat bread, and it's got to be grape wine. You make apple wine, that's not proper matter. Watermelon wine doesn't matter. It has to be grape wine. It has to be wheat bread. The form for the most blessed sacrament is hoc est in corpus meum, and hic, and, and hic est cox sanguinis mei. Which is uh, maize. This is the chalice. Or this is my body, and this is the chalice of my blood. That's the necessary form. The matter for the sacrament, for example, another sacrament of holy orders, is a baptized man. So, no matter what the hallucinations of the feminists are, it's a baptized man, and nothing else for the sacrament of holy orders. So, matter is the stuff, and form is the words. Now, what are the matter in the form of baptism? The matter, the stuff of baptism, is water natural water. It can be holy water. It can be baptismal water, which we use here, of course. It can be river water. It can be pool water. It can be distilled water. Not beer, not snow, not wine, not amniotic fluid, not spit, not fruit juice. Whatever man commonly regards as water, that's what we can use for baptism. doesn't matter if it's clean or dirty. If it's water, it's the proper matter. Okay, Father, now how does water get these absolutely incredible, totally miraculous powers? How is it that water can be used for this? Our Lord himself gave these powers to water when he was baptized by St. John. As that great bishop and doctor of the church, St. Augustine says, quote, The Lord is baptized not because he had need to be cleansed, but in order that by with the contact with his pure flesh, he might purify the waters and impart to them the power of cleansing. Close quote. Water got this power by contact with our Lord. Our whole religion in some way is about contact with our Lord. I'm a priest because of contact with our Lord. How did I get that? Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz, how did he get that? You can trace it back. You can go on the internet, it's in there. And the bishops have what's called apostolic authority. You can check 
their, their spiritual generation. And it'll go right back, in this case, to St. Peter. You know, if you're a priest in the seal of Malabar right in India, you can go back to St. Thomas and so forth. It goes back to an apostle. An apostle had the laying on hands of our Lord at the Last Supper, and it's passed right down like that in an unbroken chain. Everything in our religion is about contact with our Lord. Okay, water got that power by contact with our Lord. He gave water this power in order to bring us into intimate contact with Him, okay, so that we can live with His life. That life starts in the soul with water, which is a matter of baptism. The form is, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, or in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which language you say that in. If you spoke Spanish, I don't know what it is, but it would work the same way. What you say for the sign of the cross, and I baptize you. It doesn't matter which language, as long as you're saying the name. Not the names. It's only one God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. Okay? There are two other things that we have to keep in mind. We're talking about a sacrament. That's the minister and the intention. For every sacrament, there's a minister. For example, for the most blessed sacrament, the minister is a validly ordained priest. For marriage, the ministers are the man and the wife. For baptism, it's anyone whatsoever that has the use of reason. Anyone. Two pagans could make each other Catholics. They could minister. You can't baptize yourself. It has to be someone else. But anyone with the use of reason can baptize, can be the minister. It's such an important sacrament that God allowed anybody by his positive will to be able to be the minister of this sacrament. And there are cases, plenty of cases, where pagans have baptized another one in order that he might become a Catholic. Okay, the intention. The intention of the minister, the minister just has to intend to do what the church does. That's where the intention is required. I'm going to do whatever the church does. I might not understand it, but I'm going to do it. That's the intention needed. Okay, the minister... Okay, okay. Is it, it could be anyone. The intention is to do what the church does. So that's the matter, is water. The form is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Ministers, anyone having the use of reason, intention is to baptize. We do what the church does. So how do we baptize in the case of an emergency? For example, in the case of someone that's dying. First off, in that sort of emergency, don't even think about waiting for the priest don't wait. The whole purpose of this sermon is you know that. Don't wait. Anyone over the age of reason can do this. You little kids can do this if needs be. You need to intend to do what the church does. In other words, you need to intend to baptize this person if he already hasn't been baptized. We'll take three cases. First, the unconscious dying adult, and you're not sure if he's been baptized. You take water, and while you're pouring the water, and I'll get to where in a minute, you say the words. While you're pouring the water and it's running over the skin, you say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I baptize you. If possible, the water should be poured on the forehead. Not on the hair. It has to be on the skin. So on the forehead. It's got to move on the skin. So if all you have is a drop and it just stops, then you take your finger and drag it along. That'll do it. When you have to baptize a premium, you do. If it's moving across the skin, that's what's required. You know, it, a little drop. See, so you're moving it. It has to move. So anyway, the water has to move over the skin. Well, the water's flowing, you say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Okay? If the forehead isn't there, it's a bad wreck. Somewhere else that is. A neck. 
You know, it, it, there's still there, neck, a hand, an arm, bare skin, a shoulder, any place where the skin is exposed as the water's flowing. Now, what you mean by this is if you're capable, I baptize you, because you don't know if the person's baptized or not. Don't worry if you can't think, what am I supposed to say in the beginning? Because your intention is to baptize this person if they're not baptized. That's what your intention is, and it'll count. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, or if you're capable, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Those first couple words aren't critical. The I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost are. Okay? Second uh, case. The case of a miscarriage. There's a handout. And we have some here, and we'll have more. And if you haven't got one, get them. They're called How to Baptize in the Case of Miscarriage. Everybody, every parent, and young adult, or anybody of marrying age, ought to have these handouts. It's a good thing to make copies of these and distribute them to people, give them to people when you give them a wedding present, and so forth. Here's the basic idea. You fill a bowl with lukewarm water. We're talking about a, a young miscarriage, because obviously if it's, if it's a late term, you don't need this instruction you know already. So you break open the sack that surrounds the little baby. If it's not broken, if the sack isn't broken, there's no baptism because the water isn't flowing. So you break open that little sack, and you, you take and put it all in the bowl and swirl it around and say, I baptize you. And it's cable. If you don't see a baby, you do it as conditional again because you don't know. If you can't see one, you're still doing it in case there's a baby there that you don't see. But I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost as you're swirling in the bowl. Okay? So, bowl of lukewarm water, open a little sack, gently swirl it around in the water with saying the words, If you're capable, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what has to happen. If you don't see one there, you don't know if it's there, you're still doing it conditionally. Hey, if there's a baby there, that's a saint. That's a saint. Okay, third, third scenario. The newborn baby in the hospital. We're not talking about a preemie and a respirator here. If it's your newborn and he's having problems or dying, take a cotton ball, get it wet with lukewarm water, and depending on how he's lying there, put the cotton ball right up on his forehead or on his temple, depending on which way he's lying, and then gently squeeze it so a drop or two comes out of the cotton ball. You're not trying to soak him. That's what you do. It Just, just so there's a drop moving out sliding down his temple or, or his forehead and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost as that water's dribbling. Some people, there's a little baby here where the parents saw this happen and he was hurting and immediately after that happened he got well. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? You say it, well the water's dribbling down his skin. Okay? If it's a dying newborn of anyone else, like a non-Catholic, if he's dying, but only if he's dying. Do not do this if they're not dying or the parents aren't practical Catholics. If they're dying. This is only for people that are dying. If he's dying, baptize him. He'll be a saint. If needs be, you can give some lines about wiping the forehead of the little baby or whatever. Come up with an excuse. And then say the words so quietly that only you can hear. But you get that little guy baptized. I have a priest in another place, a friend of mine, he said he'd do a naming ceremony. There was this little, these the real-life pagans, they didn't want the kid baptized, but they wanted a naming ceremony. So he did a naming ceremony and baptized the baby right before it died. He's a saint. And the parents don't know about it, which is fine. Because they got a saint, and he'll be praying for the parents. And you can bet they're going to end up in the right place unless they really set their wills to evil. He'll get them turned around. Okay, baptize him. Get him baptized. Don't let him die without it. He can't get to heaven without it. It's a salvation issue for children, okay? Obviously, depending on where you work, 
nurses, physicians, any emergency personnel, you have a great responsibility here. You have a great opportunity, too. It's a great opportunity to get saints for the kingdom of heaven. Finally, how long after death is it okay to conditionally baptize? Well, death means when the soul leaves the body. We can't see a soul leaving the body. So how do we know? When we see decomposition setting in, then we know the soul has left the body. It starts to decompose. Don't worry if they're blue. The soul may still be there. The late great Father Hardin tells the story of a woman in Chicago who showed up. She was blue and frozen solid for eight hours when she was brought into hospital, and she walked out the next day or something. I can't remember how long later, but she ended up walking out of that hospital. If they're not decomposing, conditionally baptize them. You don't know if the soul's there, so if they're capable, you're baptizing. That way you're not abusing the sacrament, but you're making sure that person gets what they may need. Let's close. We've seen that the Council of Trent teaches that if anyone says that baptism is optional, that is, not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. We've seen how to baptize in an emergency. While pouring the water over the skin, the same person says... I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. has to be the person pouring is the person speaking. It's not a team effort. When pouring the water over the skin, the same person says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. While squeezing water out of a cotton ball, as the water dribbles, the person says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.